0: When I think about tech companies in India, for as long as I can remember, there's one thing that news publications have always been talking about. Here's how it usually goes. After raising money from existing and new investors, the company's valuation jumps from X billion dollars. Did I say they talk about it? I meant they have been obsessed with it, in a way that makes no sense. One day, I see a headline that says a company is valued at a billion dollars. Two weeks later, it's two billion. Then six months later, it's ten billion.
1: While headlines celebrate these valuations, there are also a lot of skeptics. People who basically say these valuations are just abstract numbers agreed upon by a very small group of private investors. For these skeptics, all of these billions of dollars raised don't really matter. The true test is public markets. Could you list these companies on public markets and still convince investors that they are worth billions of dollars?
0: And for a long time, most companies in India have stayed private, bumping up their valuations with investment after investment, billion after billion. Then last month, something changed. Multiple reports reveal that Flipkart, India's largest e commerce player, has hired investment bank Goldman Sachs to file for an initial public offer. Flipkart's plans to go public were seeded by its parent company, Walmart, which gave it a $21 billion valuation when they acquired them in 2018. And now Flipkart wants to list at a cool $50 billion. After 13 years in the private market, Flipkart is finally ready to put its valuation to the test.
1: A few weeks later, another report comes in. Zomato, India's largest food delivery player, is also going public. Zomato last raised money in December 2020 at a valuation of about $4 billion. Now it's apparently seeking a valuation of $8-9 billion dollars in the public market. Two of India's biggest tech companies both deciding to go public in the same year. This is a
0: big deal, my friends. And that brings us to one critical question. Are these companies really worth this much? Or is it just unrealistic? Hello and welcome to Unofficial Sources, a podcast by The Ken. I'm Anushka Chikara. I'm Olena Banerjee. And we're your hosts. Today's episode is in two parts. In the top half, we decode the question of valuation as Zomato and Flipkart, two of India's most popular and significant startups, head to the public markets. In the second half, we have a fun and zany panel of the Ken's expert journalists breaking down key business events in the current news cycle. Stay tuned. Olina, you've been a business reporter much longer than I've even been working. So help me understand this. What's the big deal with valuation? Why is everyone obsessed with it?
1: Well, Anushka, the short answer is that we like to put companies into a hierarchy, right? The implicit idea is that we need to signal how valuable a company is. That's why the whole concept of valuation exists. That's why we put them into categories. So take unicorns as an example, right? Those are companies that are worth over a billion dollars. Now we have decacons, companies that are worth over $10 billion. And we recently added a new category to the pack. Companies that are sunicons, which is companies that are going to be unicorns fairly soon.
0: Ugh, I wonder who came up with the word sunicon. It's so cringy. I know, right?
1: <laughs> but don't let the sunicons hear you. But <laughs> But the point is that companies were called unicorns because unicorns are supposed to be rare, right? Well, not
0: anymore. There are 21 unicorns just in India. Then when there's so many of them, the term kind of loses its clout, right? So, Olena, I think that if we need to understand why Flipkart and Zomato are worth all these billions of dollars, um, we need to understand how valuations are calculated exactly.
1: I have an idea of who might be able to
0: help. Hmm. Okay, let's find out.
2: Hi, I'm Praveen and I head product at The Can.
0: So the reason we're turning to you, PGK, is because you took a few courses on valuation in business school, right?
2: Yes, Anushka, but that was a long time ago. But yes, I did take a few courses in valuation in B school.
0: So I'm guessing you know a little bit about how all this works.
2: Yes, but the most important thing to understand about valuation is that, unlike other areas of finance, like, say, accounting, uh, valuation isn't something that has an objective truth. It can be a little subjective depending on the way you look at it. Uh, So, in some ways, it's more of an art rather than a science.
1: But, PGK, why is that the case, right? Valuation can be just based on cut and dry numbers, it can be based on Past performance of a company. I mean, what is the ambiguity about?
2: Yes, Olina. one way to look at it is through past performance of companies. But that method is sometimes incomplete, especially for companies that are in growth stages. So that means that their past performance isn't really an indicator of how they're going to dominate or the true value of the company. My favorite example of how I want to talk about valuation is uh, this example that's given by Ashwa Damodaran, who is a professor at NYU. And he's basically called as the Dean of Valuation. Like if you think about valuation, uh, he's probably the preeminent expert in the world. And what he tells his students in his class when they come in for valuation is one of the first questions he asks them is, are you fundamentally numbers, people, people, are you story people Uh, typically number people are those who like algebra and maths in high school and story people are those who probably like things like say English or history or something like that
0: yeah I think I'm definitely a story person I think I lean more towards
1: the numbers but not because I was good at algebra or math (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) the more important thing to understand, Anushka Nolina, is that there isn't really a right answer. You can be a numbers person or you can be a story person and both of them are fine. What Ashura Damodhan really says is that it's really important to understand that both sides have their own ways of looking at the world. So typically numbers people... Look at this and say, you know what, the only way how you can estimate the value of a company is through the numbers, and stories are just like distractions. Uh, Similarly, the story people look at this and say, look, when you're predicting something into the future and about a value of a company that is like so small, story is all that matters, and looking at numbers does not tell you anything at all. So, the really important thing to understand is that valuation is a marriage of both of these worlds. That means that If you're a number person, you have to understand and appreciate the value of stories and use that in order to get and look at something that's way into the future. Similarly, if you're a story person, you need numbers to ground you. Otherwise, you're just going to be spinning stories about things that are, you know, you can just wear into fantasy land.
0: Yeah, so... As I said, I guess I'm definitely a story person. I mean, I don't invest or anything. I just started earning money. But I heard something once that resonated with me. And that's at the end of the day, nobody can accurately predict how the market is going to work. So you should just invest in companies that you like and follow and use yourself. So to me, the story of the company influences how I feel about them, which in turn will decide whether I invest in them or not.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love stories. I love history as well. Right. But having been a business journalist for the last three years and covered EdTech for a living, I can definitely see how things like the revenue, burn rate, profitability are huge drivers for valuation. I mean, I cannot not pay
0: attention to that. Hmm. So let's do this. Let me go against my instinct and try to find out why and how exactly numbers are important to value a company. And inspired
1: by you, Anushka, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to try and find out why the lore is critical to seeking valuation for a company.
0: Okay, so I started looking at the numbers of Flipkart and Zomato and here are a few things I found out. Basically, it's not that simple. Both Flipkart and Zomato are private companies, so they don't publish quarterly or annual reports. Instead, they make annual filings at the Ministry of Corporate Affairs. Which is helpful, but also a little dated. Both companies last filed for the year ending March 2020. So while we know anecdotally that Flipkart and Zomato did well last year, and also during the pandemic, we don't know how well exactly. So I decided to approach this in a different way. And for that, I needed some help.
3: Hi, I'm Nitin. I write and manage the Ken's daily newsletter, Beyond the First Order.
0: Hey Nitin, thanks for joining us. So how do we look at it then?
3: So what we can do is a little something called relative valuation, where we try comparing Flipkart and Zomato with companies just like them. It could be in India or globally. So now the obvious comparison for Flipkart in India is Amazon. Flipkart's been around for 13 years. Amazon's been around probably for 8 to 9 years. Despite this, Amazon's revenue is actually higher than that of Flipkart. And if you break down these numbers, they're actually saying a couple of things. That Flipkart is growing slower in India compared to Amazon, and I mean revenue growth. But also that Flipkart's costs are actually lower as compared to Amazon.
0: Hmm. Okay, so... Two questions pop into my mind uh, with this. The first is, how slow is Flipkart's growth as compared to Amazon?
3: Actually, not by much. So, in the financial year 20, Amazon grew by 42% and Flipkart by 32%.
0: Okay, so there's some difference, but not a huge amount.
3: That's true. But you also have to remember that Flipkart is the smaller company here. And generally, if a bigger company grows faster than a smaller company, well, that's not great news for the smaller one.
0: Hmm. So, what about costs then?
3: So, in terms of costs, the focus areas actually seem to be different. Amazon is spending more in areas aimed at customer acquisition and driving growth, you know, like promotions and delivery. Flipkart, on the other hand, is spending on employee benefits, which actually rose further in the year ended March 2020. And generally, employee benefits are a long-term strategy for companies so that, you know, things like employee attrition is low. But for Amazon, the thing that matters the most is its top line.
0: Right. So, we see this like fundamental difference in uh, what matters to these companies the most. Now, let's, you know, start comparing Flipkart to its global competitors, the global companies.
3: So, naturally, the best place to compare is... Chinese companies, you know, like JD, Pinduoduo, and Alibaba. All of these are actually also companies that are listed in the US.
0: Right, but why do we compare it with Chinese companies?
3: So let's look at it this way. Many people in India believe that India is perhaps a decade or so behind China when it comes to certain things. So how these companies are doing today may actually be a good indication of how Flipkart will do in the future. And what we are seeing is this. These companies in China are actually way bigger than Flipkart. Uh, Now, Flipkart lags behind these companies if you look at things like revenue growth. Uh, Take, for example, Pindu Now, thanks to the pandemic, in the first nine months of 2020, its revenue surged by 70%. And its shares alone have ballooned by 4.5 times in the past year. So if you look at it, market is actually rewarding its revenue growth over its profitability.
0: Right. And, you know, I get a clear picture of Flipkart's story by its numbers now. And essentially, by trying to be more profitable, it's reduced its growth as compared to Amazon. Right. And it looks like the U.S. market, where Flipkart plans to list, rewards growth over profits, at least if you look at its peers from China, as you mentioned. So, let's move on to Zomato then.
3: Absolutely, Anushka. So, in India, Zomato and Swiggy are in a virtual duopoly in the food delivery business. Both of them are valued at nearly the same amount. And until the year ending 2019, both are neck and neck in terms of revenue. However, there is one big advantage for Zomato. It's that its costs are lower.
0: Right, just like how Flipkart's Is lower as compared to Amazon.
3: That's right. And Zomato actually spends less on delivery and employees as compared to Swiggy. Now, one of the reasons for that is that a big percentage of its orders are from smaller cities where the cost of delivery is actually lower. Uh, And if you look at Doordash in the US, it's pretty similar that way because Doordash actually gets most of its orders from the suburbs in the US.
0: Hmm. So speaking of, you know, DoorDash, like a global company, what other uh, global companies can we compare to
3: Zomato? So there's Grubhub, Uber Eats, and there's also Meituan, which is the biggest. It's Chinese-based and it's actually profitable. Now, Zomato's revenue growth is really strong compared to all of the others as well. But there's one caveat. It is much smaller in scale. Like it's just four percent of Met but the good thing is that Zomato's commission from restaurants is really healthy. It's it stands at around twenty two percent. The commissions for Uber Eats, dodash on the other hand, is somewhere around ten percent.
0: Wow, that's yeah, that that's less than half. Um, you know, compared to its competitors. So, other than that, what else is working out for Zomato in terms of numbers?
3: So when you're trying to gauge the extent of future potential growth, you often look at something called market penetration or how many people are using the service. And if you look at online food delivery as a percentage of food service spend, you'll see that it's only 4%. And that number could be crucial. Now there's also another big difference. Zomato plans to list in India. And in India, even the stock exchanges look at profitability by listing unlike the US. So maybe even investors here will prefer profitability over growth.
0: Hmm, That's interesting to kind of get this whole picture. And, um, you know, what will be even more interesting is to see how the investors will react and treat these companies once they finally go public. So I think that's definitely something for all of us and the listeners to look forward to. Yeah, just to give us like an overall picture, Nitin, uh, I'd really appreciate you coming here. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Anushka. While Anushka figured out
1: the numbers to analyze Flipkart and Zomato's valuations, I decided to look at something much more interesting. What's the story being told by these companies? What have the investors heard over the last decade that's convinced them to pump in billions of dollars? And... What's the story that we will hear when they decide to go public? To understand the stories of Flipkart and Zomato, I decided to turn to the person who actually wrote about these companies most recently.
4: Hi, I'm Sita Raman. I head the Mumbai Bureau for the Ken, and I write about energy and retail among other sectors.
1: Sita's been a business reporter for nearly 13 years now. Before joining the Ken, Sita was at the Economic Times. At the Ken, he's known for his sharp reporting from the retail and e-commerce battles of India and his pension for very well-timed one-liners, which I have often been a victim of.
4: Thanks, Alina. I do what I can to make work a bit more fun.
1: Sure, Sita. I hope we're going to have fun in this segment. So I want to start with Flipkart. Now, suppose you're Walmart, the company that owns Flipkart. Assume I'm an investor who knows very little about e-commerce, and you come to me and tell me that Flipkart is worth $50 billion. I mean, what does that pitch even look like? What's the story you're going to use to convince me?
4: Well, Olina, it's important to understand the context here. Let's start with Walmart. Walmart bought Flipkart in 2018 as a way to expand its market. Basically, in the US, Amazon had eaten its lunch and Walmart needed an online play elsewhere. So it decided to turn to India, which is a goldmine for e-commerce companies simply because of its size and rising incomes. And it wrote a $16 billion check for Flipkart. This was its biggest ever acquisition. But immediately after this, Walmart's shares fell 4%. And Walmart had to cut its earnings forecast for 2019. In short, investors were clearly not jumping in joy.
1: But why, though? I mean, Flipkart is clearly the market leader in India. It's growing rapidly. And I mean, e-commerce is one segment which, you know, according to your own stories, has a huge headroom for growth, right? It's, it's going to be a $200 billion market. So what's the deal here?
4: Well, that's correct. But there were many reasons. And the main one was that Walmart's investors care more about profits. And they feared that Walmart would pump more cash into Flipkart for years, which would affect Walmart as a company. And there were also concerns that Walmart had paid way too much for Flipkart.
1: Okay, so Walmart's investors were clearly being conservative, but were any of their fears justified?
4: Well, not in hindsight. Uh, It now looks like Walmart was far too conservative.
1: Why do you say that?
4: Well, for one, Flipkart continues to grow. And uh, if you look at PhonePay, the payment startup that Flipkart bought in 2016, that has turned out to be a priced asset for Flipkart and Walmart. It's now valued at $5.5 billion. Uh, Walmart is actually looking to take phone pay public after Flipkart. And then there is Mintra, the fashion retailer that Flipkart acquired in 2014. It's thanks to Mintra that Flipkart now has a 60% market share in the online fashion retail market.
1: Got it. So it's sounding more and more like Flipkart is like this giant octopus conglomerate with all of these little profitable arms. And that's, I guess, made Walmart do an about face, right? It's basically now saying, wow, we can't believe how amazing this company is. And we think investors will understand too when we go public. Am I right? Am I getting the tail right?
4: Yeah, yeah, Alina. Walmart actually believes that uh, Flipkart is going to do very well. And if you look at how... IPOs have done lately, there's actually no better time to uh, take a company public. Take the example of Airbnb, the home rental startup. Its future looked very uncertain in the initial weeks of the lockdown. Then towards the end of the year, it decided to go public on NASDAQ. It actually wanted a valuation of $47 billion, but investors said, hold on, that's too little. And they valued the company at over $100 billion dollars. This could actually rub off on Flipkart as there is a strong possibility that Flipkart will list on Nasdaq.
1: 100 billion is nice, right? It's a nice fat amount and Flipkart's telling a good story. Walmart's chiming in. But I have to ask you, are there any big risks that Flipkart needs to watch out for? I mean, who are the proverbial villains of the story?
4: Oh, yes, there are risks here. Actually, two key ones. The first is Amazon, which is Flipkart's arch rival in India. For a long time, people here thought that Flipkart would be the Amazon of India. But now it's very clear that the Amazon of India is in fact Amazon itself. Amazon is focused on growth, while Flipkart wants to reduce its losses. And that could be a problem because overseas investors value growth and rising market share more than anything else in e-commerce. And the second big risk is Geomart, the youngest player in e-commerce. It's owned by a billionaire Mukesh Ambani, who's India's shrewdest and most aggressive tycoon. Giamat actually poses a serious challenge, not just to Flipkart, but also to Amazon.
1: Okay, I get it. So there's both known and unknown devils here. I want to quickly switch to the Zomato story, Sita, and, and I want to see how appealing their story is.
4: Well, Olina, Zomato's story is a lot simpler. With people ordering in way more during the pandemic, food delivery has become really hot. Uh, take Dodash, the American food delivery startup. It actually managed to more than double its valuation to $38 billion in its IPO in December.
1: Right, but DoorDash listed in the US, it's a US IPO. Would that same logic work in India? Well,
4: it should. Uh, Indian investors seem to be in love with anything to do with food. Take the recent IPO of the Indian franchise of Burger King, the fast food chain. The stock actually listed at a 92% premium to its issue price. And we have to remember that food delivery in India is essentially a toss-up between Zomato and Swiggy right now. And food delivery is still in its early stages in India. And neither company actually needs to outspend the other. It's clearly not a zero-sum game yet.
1: Okay, great. So it sounds like Zomato is in a two-horse race. But what are the hurdles it still needs to cross?
4: Well, to convince investors in India, Zomato needs to diversify beyond commissions on food delivery which is responsible for over 80% of its revenue. It's not that Zomato is not trying. One of its newer divisions is Hyperpure, which supplies groceries to restaurants. But it's still very small, and Zomato has to compete with other well-funded startups like NinjaCard and established players like Metro Cash and Carry.
1: Well, Sita, thanks so much for spending time and patiently explaining all of this to me.
4: Uh, thanks a lot, Alina. This was a lot of fun. In fact, a lot more fun than I thought it would be.
1: So I think I've come to more of a middle ground, right? I think I see the intersection of stories and numbers when it comes to creating valuation for a company. So yeah, I think I found some kind of peaceful middle ground here.
0: Yeah, I mean, me too, definitely. I don't think I'm like a complete convert though but um, I, I got a more balanced view and of course I knew that numbers matter in the valuation it's just there were so many floating around and now I get an idea of just how they work and what it all means when you're valuing a company.
1: Right but Anushka here's the other interesting thing about this uber nerdy conversation we just had with three people right. Flipkart and Zomato are essentially on opposite sides of the IPO spectrum, I realize. Zomato needs profitability for its Indian IPO, but it's actually been doubling down on growth. And Flipkart, on the other hand, which needs to get the conservative Walmart off its back and grow in terms of revenue, is actually more focused on cutting back costs. So, I mean, clearly there are no easy answers when it comes to seeking valuation,
0: not even for companies seeking a billion-dollar price tag. We'll be back after the break and we'll be joined by a panel of the Ken's expert journalists.
5: Hi, I'm Dharma Dharmakumar and one of the co-founders of the Ken. What you hear and hopefully even like in this podcast, the voices, the narrative, the analysis, comes from the Ken's newsroom. Since 2016, our team of talented and experienced journalists, editors, designers, and engineers have single-mindedly focused on just making one thing. Business stories that are original, insightful, well-told, and biased. That's right, biased. Everything we do is biased towards the only people we care for, our subscribers. Not advertisers, because we don't have any. Not sponsors, because we don't have any. Just subscribers. This podcast is just a small, although valuable, sliver of our work. It's powered by the subscriptions of over 25,000 subscribers in India, Southeast Asia, and the rest of the world. There's nothing we'd like more than to have you as a subscriber too, which is why we've set up a special offer for you to experience the rest of our journalism of over 1,000 deep stories, multiple daily newsletters, exclusive apps, and of course, podcasts. Just type the-ken.com slash podcast offer into your browser. Thanks for listening to us.
0: Hello and welcome back to Unofficial Sources. I hope you liked the first segment of this episode. So for the second segment, I decided to come together with a few colleagues of mine. They're all um, recording in a studio in Bangalore, well socially distanced, and I'm taking socially distancing to a whole different level, and I'm joining them remotely from Goa. So the first person we have here is Arundhati, who you'll recognize from our previous episode where we covered a story of illegal Chinese loan apps. Hi, Arundati. Hello, Anushka. Uh, second, we have Praveen, aka PGK over here. Uh, Praveen is the head of product and also writes our weekly newsletter, The Nutgraph. Hi, Praveen.
2: Hey, Anushka, I'm really jealous of where you are right now.
0: I don't blame you. Next, we have Nitin. Nitin is kind of the go-to finance guy here at the Ken, and he writes and
3: manages
0: the daily newsletter Beyond the First Order. Hi, Nitin. Hey, Anushka. So, you'll probably recognize PGK and Nathan's voices from the previous segment, and they've decided to come in here as well. And lastly, we have Rohin, the co-founder of The Ken. Um, yeah, I don't know how else to describe him. <laughs> Hi, Rohin.
5: Hey, Anushka. I'm the official Boomer representative in this meeting.
0: Okay, fair enough, but I didn't say that, not my words. So, you know, um, from... The first episode that we released, uh, some feedback I got from people was that a lot of people liked the second segment, but they weren't exactly sure what it is um, or what to make of the second segment, basically. And uh, can you guys help me in describing what exactly this is in our podcast?
5: All right. So this segment, as I see it as the official boomer representative, is like those post movie credits at the end of a movie. Everyone knows that. Like you know, what what happens is when I go to watch a movie um, with our eleven year old son, the movie gets over, and what does everyone do?
2: Everybody gets Walk up and away. leaves.
5: Yeah, away. that's what I want to do, <laughs> but he doesn't. He wants to watch the post movie credits. Because right? because it's right. interesting. They
0: stay back. That's the best part. Exactly.
2: Do you know that there are post post movie credits as well? I'm serious. Really?
4: Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm serious. Okay, let's not let's not get carried away, right? So, basically in this segment, um we've all come together and I want to hear from everybody. We're going to discuss the most significant things that have happened in India over the past week. So, I want to ask everybody what they think in their opinion is the most important story in business in India that has happened. So why don't we start with you first, Arundhati? Uh, What, according to you, is the important story you want to share? Okay, so
6: Tata Group is in talks to buy 1MG and uh, Big Basket. Uh, It's it's been in talks for a while now, but looks like things are uh, 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 moving on now, right? So Tata Group almost wants to spend uh, 1.3 billion in buying Big Basket and take almost an 80% stake in the company. What is interesting about this is that it seems to be following uh, the path laid by gio
2: This actually sounds like a dinosaur trying to buy a rocket ship, <laughs> you know, it just sounds so strange. Has anyone could, given one year back, imagine you could go back in a time machine, go to the CEO of Big Basket, go to the CEO of 1MG, which are fairly like new age companies to go there and essentially say, hey, do you think that you'd want to sell to Tata Group? I don't think anybody would want to do that. I don't know why this is happening.
5: Why do you say that, Praveen? Why wouldn't anyone want to sell to one of India's oldest and most storied and most prestigious conglomerates?
2: I don't know. Think about it. Which is the last time that something like a Tata group has taken something in the online space and done something with it? It hasn't even built anything. It hasn't acquired anything.
6: Remember its food delivery app, Cumin.
5: They had a food delivery app?
6: Yeah, we wrote about that.
5: Oh, it's written Q-M-I-N. Clever, right?
6: Yeah, it's a food <laughs> delivery app that that deals in really high-end uh, specialty stuff.
3: Wow, okay. I didn't yeah. even know about this. Yeah. So, For quick question reason. here, guys. So, I'm a big fan of private label um, stuff in, you know, grocery chains. Now, wouldn't Tata coming in actually help Big Basket to really ramp up their private label?
5: So, uh... The Big Basket founders are like really experienced um, consumer and FMCG hands and they've been doing this for a long while. I'd be surprised if there's anyone in India who has uh, much to teach them when it comes to sourcing, private labels, distribution, retail, etc. So, I'd be very skeptical and certainly of like, you know, the Tata's teaching Big Basket how to do this.
6: But why now, you think?
5: Well. Actually, that's a good way, right? Let's flip that question. I mean, everyone knows or everyone can surmise why the Tatas want to enter e-commerce, right? Because, you know, that's what, like you said, um, Reliance is there, Jio is there, right? But let's flip that question. Why would, like Praveen said, uh, 1MG and Big Basket want to sell? I would imagine that this is probably a good time to sell
2: good time to go IPO it's a good time for if you are a company that is doing reasonably well and you think that you can get this is probably a good time for you to go and get a killing
6: but also remember that Alibaba has a 29% stake in Big Basket
5: Ooh. <laughs>
2: I think we have our answer Chinese <laughs> oh,
5: investment not allowed
2: yeah okay Rohin you want to explain the Chinese investment
5: part oh yes um, for those of you who didn't know, last year, the Indian government, not in so many words, but effectively banned major investments, uh, venture investments uh, from China into Indian startups. So overnight, a significant pool of venture capital that would come into India from Chinese conglomerates and venture capital funds just dried up. Right. So,
3: But money still has been coming in, right? I mean, Tencent
5: has found a way to root money into startups? Well, I mean, I think it's fits and bursts. exceptions, not the rule, right? So, and 29% is a lot to replace. Yeah.
3: So you would need a large conglomerate like Tata at the end of the day. You would need somebody
2: big, somebody safe and somebody in India.
0: Okay, then Rohin, um, now would you like to share what interesting business story you found from this week?
5: Uh, Yes, I would. And it's actually uh, structured like a question. And the question is directed at Nitin. Nitin, I don't have $55,000. But say I had, how do I turn it into $22 million? I would have said, look at
3: GameStop. I probably wouldn't have said that. I would have pointed you to Reddit, where everyone was talking about this company called GameStop. Uh, A video retailer, a mall retailer, they sell video games. Uh, and the stock price has zoomed in the past couple of months.
5: Have they done anything really interesting for it to zoom? They haven't.
3: They've had a couple of investors come in, but a lot of action has been taking place on the Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets. So let's assume that you were a participant in Wall Street Bets. You, you know, decide to get together with others just like you who wanted to make a lot of money. Me, me, me. Someone like Arundhati, perhaps. And then you looked over at you know PGK who is a hedge fund. I always wanted to be a hedge fund. And PGK never really liked the stock. So what did he do? He never bought the stock. He instead short-sold the stock, which means he sold it without really owning it. Okay, so I know how this works.
2: So the way this works is that I think I look at GameStop, I know that this is going to die. So what I say is, okay, I'm going to borrow some shares of GameStop and it's just going to like go down anyway. And after it goes down, I'll just return the shares and I will make a killing. So basically, I'm betting that this stock is going to go down, which makes sense because GameStop is mostly there in malls and malls are all shut. So it's sort of a very logical thing So you're thing a to fat
5: happen. cat pessimist.
2: Yes, I'm a pessimist betting that this is going to go down and I'm going to wait for it to go down. And as it goes
3: down, I make money. So a lot of people don't like hedge funds like PGK because they are pessimists. And I don't know why. They're also nice. called parasites by a lot of people. Right? <laughs> so what can you do? You can buy the stock, but you can also buy call options. Now call options are just an easier way to buy the stock. You pay a slightly lower premium and you get access to the stock as well. So let's assume that you, Arundhati, and you get a lot of other people and you all buy the stock. Now, what happens to PGK?
2: So what? I mean, I just assume what happens is that the stock does not go down because if you're buying... Oh, it goes
3: up. The stock zooms because now everyone's buying GameStop. Oh,
2: I know what happens. I, 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 can't, I can't find shares to return them. So basically, if I, since I've borrowed the shares and I have to return them, if nobody's
3: giving me the shares i cannot return them they're asking you to return the shares back now where are you going to get the shares from but come on surely like it can't be that many people oh it was really bad because the hedge funds had actually short sold more stock than it was call it a stock market quirk let's not get into that
2: but surely there must be some i mean it can't be that the people on reddit who are just day traders who have nothing to do sitting at home are like really do not underestimate the
5: power of
3: reddit
6: and this is where Robinhood comes Right?
3: That's true. A lot of people have been sitting at home. They've got stimulus checks in the US. They're looking for ways to spend money. They're also looking for a way to stick it to the establishment. And you are the establishment here in this case, PGK.
2: They don't like you.
3: This can go on for like a day or two. I'm a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. So now imagine if Rohin and Arundhati can get people with massive amounts of capital to buy into the stock as well. Someone like Chamath of Social Capital. What do you do now?
2: Okay, so I'm, I'm assuming this is getting worse and worse for me. But, so every day you're getting squeezed. Right. So there's nobody ready to give me stock and people are asking me for it. But he still
5: has
3: to buy
2: stock. So he has right? to buy
3: stock. And who benefits? Rohan, Arundhati. And pretty soon you could go out of business. So is that what happened? It could. Not yet. People like you are still holding on to their positions and they're still confident that it's all going to unwind. It could carry on for a little more time, but Rohin's made his money. He's now worth $22 million. I like it.
5: The common man who's an optimist sticks it to the fat cat pessimist and wins in the end. I like this story.
0: Okay, so Praveen, would you like to share with us uh, what important business story from the past week we can discuss?
2: Yes. The most important business story from last week, according to me, was what's happening in the Karnataka High Court. So here's what happened. Amazon, which is India's largest online retailer, is fighting a case against uh, the CCI, which is the competition regulator of India. The competition regulator is essentially telling Amazon, look, you're too dominant. Uh, We want to investigate you. You're doing... No,
5: I don't think they say that. They said we want to investigate if you're too dominant.
2: Ah, it's a question. We want to see if you are dominant. And Amazon said, no, no, you can't do that. Went to the Karnataka High Court, got a stay order. And the CCI said, hey, wait a minute, we can do that. We are the competition regulator. And now, right now, the Amazon lawyer is in the high court explaining why the competition regulator should not be investigating them. But two interesting things came out in that. One, um, Amazon came in and said that these two companies, maybe you've heard of them, uh, called Cloudtail and Apario, are actually third-party sellers and are treated like any other sellers and don't have any preference on their platform.
3: Who here? But I like Cloudtail and Apario. So when I'm shopping on Amazon, that's my preferred choice. They've got good ratings, I think. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And somehow I trust them. Ah,
2: but do you know who's behind Cloudtail and Appario and how they came about?
3: I do know that the Cadmaran Ventures by Infosys, Narayan Murthy is there in the mix, but
5: that's what's right. the history? That's right. Rohan, you want to tell us the history yeah, of... So uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, when we talk about the history of these sellers, and, and I think it's important to understand that Amazon India is a marketplace where it doesn't sell anything by itself, yeah. right? And only third-party sellers, and these are third-party sellers. These are two of uh, Amazon's largest third-party sellers. Uh, And why they came about is because one day the Indian government um, and its regulators woke up and said, Hey, you know what? E-commerce platforms in India cannot sell stuff directly to consumers. They cannot hold inventory. So what would a Flipkart or an Amazon do?
2: Yeah, they just like called up the biggest law firm in India and said, please come help us
5: sell it on these platforms. Exactly. Every law that the government makes exposes loopholes, which can then be like, you know, harnessed. So these third party sellers are essentially joint ventures that Amazon has set up uh, in one case, like you said, with uh, Catamaran Ventures by Infosys uh, founder Narayan Murthy. And the other one, Apario, is with the Putney family. Yeah, that's right. So why these names, Rohan? Good question. Cloudtail Apario, I, I honestly don't know. No, no I mean, no. What's, what's behind the investors? In, why the choice of
3: Infosys, Narayan Murthy, and, and Putney, the Putney yeah. group?
5: I think that's above my pay grade, but I would <laughs> hazard that these are respectable names. And uh, I'm sure Amazon Uh, saw a future where it would be asked about these entities. So it helps to have respectable families and investors on the other side.
6: So it's payday for lawyers apparently, huh?
5: It's always payday for lawyers.
6: Yeah, yeah. And this is what the lawyer for Amazon said at the high court during the hearing, right? That the fact that CCI was investigating Amazon itself was a violation of the Competitive Act. Now that's Uh, something.
2: So the Competition Regulator of India Investigating... India's largest online retailer is (laughs) anti-competitive
6: apparently
0: okay well on that note let's uh, end the segment right here thanks guys for joining me from a whole different state Um, I really enjoyed this and I hope our listeners did too
5: thanks Anushka we are cancelling your leave please come back thanks Anushka
0: (laughs) thank you have fun in Goa
3: thank you maybe I'll come to Goa
5: (laughs) you're not going to Goa why are you going to Goa (laughs) chill (laughs)
0: And that's it for this episode of Unofficial Sources. If you liked it and want to get a bit more of an in-depth view of the stories, you can click the links in our show notes and we've covered the stories expansively on our websites. Other than that, for our podcast, do subscribe on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts and give us a rating on iTunes. Every bit helps. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything to add or you want to say something to us. We'll see you next time on Unofficial Sources.